0: My, there you got my story. Just ask a woman, wow. there you got my story. Trouble, trouble, there you, you are listening to Feminist Current. Story. I'm Megan Murphy. Kathleen Lowry, an Associate professor of Anthropology at the University of Alberta, was recently dismissed from her role as undergraduate programs chair after being pressured to resign. She has very good reason to believe this was due to her views on gender identity ideology. I spoke with her on Thursday about what happened and about the current culture in academia in terms of free speech, open debate, and of course the ability of students and professors alike to discuss the issue of gender identity. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Um, well first, um... Tell us a bit about yourself. What's your history in, in academia?
1: Well, I'm originally a, a lowland South Americanist anthropologist. So I, I've done research since 1997 in a Guarani-speaking indigenous community in Bolivia. Um, and funnily enough, that's it's through that research that I actually got interested in trans issues. So... There was some of your listeners may have read Alice Drager's book, Galileo's Middle Finger. Mm -hmm. So she treats the case of J. Michael Bailey. But another case that she treats is um, Napoleon Chagnon and his research among the Yanomami. Um, And my my supervisor was involved in this kind of huge controversy about Shagnon's work among the Yanomami. And I, so I first became aware of Alice Drager because she wrote about my supervisor and she was really scathingly critical in ways that I thought were quite unfair. So I, I, so I read that and I thought, oh, I, you know, I'm, I would like to write a critique of that. And then I saw that she had also written about um, J. Michael Bailey. So I, I looked at that kind of as a hostile reader, because I thought, well, I don't trust Alice Drager on Shagnon, so why should I trust her on J. Michael Bailey? And I, I wrote for, a, for a pan, an, uh, an anthropology panel back in 2010, I wrote a paper that um, talked about her defense of two male researchers who had been accused of pretty unethical practice. So that would be Napoleon Shagnon, the anthropologist, and J. Michael Bailey, the sex researcher. And I, I actually still think to this day that um, J. Michael Bailey, I mean, I do think he like, he slept with the research subjects. I do think his research practice was pretty unethical. But anyway, while I was researching this, I, I contacted Andrea James, who is a trans-identified man who was sort of at the heart of the kind of attack on J. Michael Bailey. And Alice Drager talks about him a lot. So I contacted Andrea James, and actually, Andrea was great, like really funny, really friendly, really informative, although he looks pretty terrible in Draeger's book. So I I was I was kind of like, oh, Drager's done it again. You know, first she was terrible to my supervisor, Terence Turner, and now she's been terrible to Andrea James. So um, I I can't actually totally remember the argument of the paper, but it was something about her defense of two besieged male academics, and I, I wrote it up for an anthropology journal, and I got a pretty good revise and resubmit, but one of the things they wanted me to do is they wanted me to write up the whole controversy about the Animani, which I just thought, oh, God, I don't, I just don't want to do that. It's You could find that information in lots of places, and, and it would take up a ton of space in the paper, so I decided to withdraw the paper, and I thought what I'm really interested in is why kind of a feminist critique of why she decided to defend these two male researchers. So I'm going to try and rewrite it for a gender studies journal, but I, I didn't, I mean, I'm not, gender studies is not my field. I don't know that much about gender studies, but I, I thought, okay, well I need to figure out a little bit more about the feminist literature and I should probably figure out by this time I knew that, um, there was a feminist critique of the idea that trans women are women, but I thought, well, you know, I'd heard of Janice Raymond, so I was like, well, it's probably kind of old-fashioned, but I'll I'll look into it because I, I have to I have to orient my argument in terms of that literature. So I kind of poked around, and I don't know I don't remember now how because it's now years ago. I came across um, Gender Trender, so Gallus Mag's site. And at first, you know, I was like, oh, she's so mean. And she's so, she's such an evil, secondly, feminist. And she doesn't believe trans women are women. But she's funny and she's lively. So I kept going back and checking every now and then. And I just, you know, she really documented a lot of things. And I just eventually thought, oh, God, (laughs) I think I've been, I mean, I think I've been wrong, I think. So I I started out um, really... I mean, I think like a a lot of women who now are concerned about trans rights activism. I started out very pro, very sympathetic. So I I you know I kept reading Gallus Mag. Somehow I came across your site. I started reading you, and I just you know I just kind of flipped. I converted and became um, a gender critical feminist. I think I found a comment of mine at some point that was from 2015 that was still. So I think it must have been after 2015 that I sort of changed my position. Um and I actually never ended up going back to that paper just because by the time I, you know, by the time I sort of transferred what I thought um that paper had kind of fallen by the wayside. So, yeah.
0: And how long have you been working at the University of Alberta?
1: For 15 years, since 2005.
0: Interesting. Have you talked to students or in your classes? Do you talk about issues surrounding gender or gender identity?
1: Well, it was only for the first time this past, this, the winter term of 2020, that I actually offered a course So let's say by 2015, I had kind of changed my mind. Um, I think it was in 2018 that I published a piece on your site, on Feminist Current. So And by that time, I felt like, okay, I'm ready to be out. Like, I'm going to publish a piece under my own name. So that's when I I started um, becoming more of an out gender-critical feminist. I think I started having signs on my office door, I don't know, 2018, 2019, something like that. And I also had become, because... You know, I really feel that gender critical feminism gave me sort of a second education. So one of the other things I became interested in was just the literature and second wave feminism generally. So I started accumulating this reading list of things I wanted to read um, that had sort of fallen out of the canon in anthropology. So I, I eventually had a reading list that I felt like, oh, I think this would make a pretty good course. So I put in, you can apply to teach these sort of special topics courses. So I said, I wanted to teach a special topics course. It got assigned in winter 2020. So that's when I, um, yeah, I designed the course. The course started in January 2020. And I began by saying to students, look, you're gonna read a lot of stuff in this class that is really out of fashion. And you're also gonna read some towards the end of the course because it was a little bit chronological.
0: What was the course?
1: It was called Anthropology of Women. Okay. So, um, you know, feminist theories of, a lot of second wave feminist literature, feminist theories of human evolution, of um, stuff like goddess art, which I had always been taught in graduate school, was, you know, it was ridiculous to think that it had anything to do with matriarchy. And then I went back and read Maria Gambitas. And um, yeah, she's in this really satisfying way. It turned out to be right about a lot of things. And I just started to think, oh, well, I think... know, it wasn't just about gender critical feminism, it was about this whole body of scholarship that somehow across the 80s and 90s got just totally pushed out of the academy. So the course was, we're going to read that stuff, and specifically the the subset of that stuff that relates to anthropology. But then the last section of the course included recent stuff on gender gender critical feminism, just because I think, once you've read an account of how second wave feminism got kind of pushed out of the academy, you can kind of see what it is gender critical feminists are on about. But anyway, I told students at the beginning, I said, look, you're going to read a lot of stuff that's that's out of fashion, you're going to read stuff that's controversial, you don't have to agree with me. But I, I think that it's valid this, I think you'll find real value in reading this literature that is not, is really not going to be taught elsewhere at the university. So and that course I have to say um, went really well. So even students who at the end of the course still thought trans women are women, they they really found a lot of value in the material of the course. So I don't I don't think any of the issues I've had with students have come from students in that class. And I haven't specifically taught gender critical feminist stuff in other classes just because I teach it doesn't come up, you know, I teach introductory anthro classes where um you're giving a broad overview of the discipline i teach economic anthropology south america kinship in future incarnations that might come up but it just wouldn't wouldn't be really a natural fit in a lot of the other classes i teach mm-hmm.
0: can you tell me you mentioned you started putting some signs on your door can you tell me about those signs
1: right so i just um you know i I think, like many women in Canada, especially after B- Bill C-16 was passed, I just started to feel more and more upset. So um, the signs were, I'd say mostly quotes from gender-critical feminists. Like I had one from Sarah Dytum for a while. I had, after Magdalene Burns died, I had a picture of Magdalene Burns and her famous Be Brave speech. Um, I had a quote about... Like, if you call me cis, that presumes that I accept, you know, that I'm comfortable with all the things attributed to um, feminine womanhood. So stuff, I mean, there was nothing that was like, wow trans people are terrible. It was more um, sort of pithy, gender-critical statements.
0: Right. And did you get reactions from students about these signs and quotes?
1: Um, no, I mean, not directly to my face. I did in the fall, I got called into my department chair's office and she said, have you got a transphobic sign on your door? And this probably would have been around the time Magdalene Burns died. So I'm guessing it probably would have been the Magdalene Burns and the Be Brave speech. And I said, well, you know, no, I don't think it's transphobic, but you can go and have a look and see what you think. And, and so she, I don't know if she went and had a look or not, but she didn't say how to take it down. Um, but so I, I was aware that, um, students were complaining Mm -hmm. at that point.
0: Okay. And so uh, the big thing that that's happened recently is that you were asked to resign as associate chair of undergraduate programs for the department of anthropology. Um, can you talk a bit about that? You know, was, I mean, first of all, of course, we want to know what happened there, but was there any kind of lead up or build up where there was sort of some controversy brewing around you?
1: Well, there was, but I was not aware of it. So I knew, I knew that some people had complained about the sun in my office door, but I was sort of just carrying on my life. I I started teaching my course, although the early part of the course was like, elaine morgan and the aquatic ape hypothesis it was nothing to do with um gender critical feminism but my i i definitely knew there was some students who just were like not friendly to me you know like they didn't really want to say hi in the hallway so and i thought oh it probably has something to do with it but it any at any rate my department chair called me in and said listen this has been going on for months and you have a right to know about it. So there've been a lot of complaints and, um, we, we just think this is like not good for the department. And, and once you're associate chair, it's not just about you and your opinions. Like you also have to think about the good of the department and students have been going around and saying, telling other people not to major in anthropology because you're the undergraduate programs chair. Um, and she also said that I, somebody had said that I discouraged students from organizing a pride event, which was definitely not true. So I said, listen, I, I didn't discourage anybody from organizing a pride event. I do have gender critical views. I'm, I'm not gonna like, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of those views. So I'm not going to resign because of them, but you all can dismiss me. It just, but I, I feel like if there's something that I've done that's wrong, um, then you should say like hey you did this wrong thing and then we'll i'll either say oh you got me or, or oh no i didn't so like the pride event thing that that just wasn't true um so yeah so the upshot of the conversation i said look it, it feels a bit mccarthyite like you're being you're asking me to resign because of my views so you can dismiss me but i'm not going to resign
0: mm-hmm.
1: um that was the end of that conversation. And then about a week later, I got called into the dean's office. We we had sort of a similar conversation, at the end of which I said, there's a meeting that I had to go to the next day if I was still undergraduate programs chair. And I said, well, am I still undergraduate programs chair, or am I not? And she said, yes, you are, so you have to go to that meeting tomorrow. So I said, okay. Um, and then a couple weeks later, I got an email saying, it's not it's not in the best interest of the department for you to continue serving, so um, you're dismissed. And I wrote back and I said, can you just, can you tell me why? And she wrote back and she said, no, I don't think it would be productive. Um, I had, I had audio recorded both of those conversations with my chair and my dean with their permission. It wasn't secretly. So I, you know, I knew, and I knew they knew why I had been dismissed. And I, and I felt like, well, they probably don't they don't want to put it in writing because they'd either have to say that I had done something bad, which I don't think I did, or they'd have to say it was because of my views, which is, you know, in a university setting, pretty awkward. Um, so I, you know, at first, all I really wanted was a letter saying what I had done wrong because I, I you know, honestly, I thought to myself, like, this will be a nice letter to have. Ten years from now, when you know this kind of era ends, and it'll be sort of a badge of, look, I was a gender critical feminist back in the day. But when they refused to provide a letter, then I went to my faculty association and um, started the process of filing a grievance. And I didn't know much about what that meant, so initially, all I wanted was like, can you guys just make them write a letter? And they said, well no, we can't really make them write a letter, but they, um, they saw the letter that the, that had been used to dismiss me. And they also listened to the audio recordings and they agreed that this was, um, this, what, this was not according to our collective agreement, what the due process is supposed to be. So they have been helping me and I'm, I'm pretty sure like with that one, I think I'm pretty likely to prevail but there's now there's now kind of a part two to the story that I think is going to be um sort of a bigger deal so part one of the story I I ended up telling a colleague about it and that's the colleague who wrote up the thing that that sort of made this go public so that was on the Center for Free Expression blog um so that's what hit the news but I actually think this first the sort of stage one of this process Um, yeah, I I mean, I think I'm probably going to win, but there is now a stage two unfolding. So,
0: so, okay. So when you, let's start with the stage one. So when you say you think you're going to win, what does that mean? You think you're going to win what?
1: I think I'm going to win in the sense that the university is going to say, okay, yeah, we did like, that was not, um, we didn't follow the, the discipline process as we should have done. So either, either they'll initiate a discipline process, like they'll actually come up with some formal complaints, or they'll agree that I have to be reinstalled as associate chair. But I, I think, I think even if I went on that, I think that's going to be superseded by something else that's happening now. So I think the, the sort of round one is, doesn't really even really involve, I mean, it does of course involve my gender critical views, but the way it's going to be resolved is not going to involve my gender critical views at all. It's going to be like, okay, we should have done a a proper disciplinary Mm -hmm. process and we didn't. So fair enough. You went. Um, Yeah. Okay.
0: So what's, what's going on now? What's, what's the second phase that's
1: happening? So, so the second phase that's happening now is once this became like a big news deal, um, students and some colleagues started to go through all of my social media history. And I always comment under my full name because I am a professor who has the protections of tenure. So I feel like that's important. And particularly they've started um, searching through Spinster. So you, you know Spinster is like gender critical feminist Twitter. And I don't know what they've found, but I got an email from a student yeah. journalist saying do you want to comment on, I said something about how I, I thought it would be good. Like I, I knew people were surveilling my Spencer, So I posted something on Spencer that said, like, I hope you guys find your time here really informative. Um, it's fine that you're following me here. And, and I, I said that I thought students would benefit from being exposed to Spencer. So the like as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so I got an email from a student journalist saying, do you want to comment any further on that? and i don't know but what that makes me think is you know they've found something i don't think from anything i've posted or reposted there but they've found something on spencer as a whole that can probably qualify as hate speech or looks pretty i mean you know cuz there's all kinds of people posting on spencer so i think that's what's going to emerge next and i and i actually think that i mean i i don't know but i suspect it's going to be kind of a and its own big deal and I I think in a way it's going to be a more interesting big deal just because um and I can explain why I think this but I think it's going to raise its issues that are far beyond anything to do with academic freedom and they're going to be issues more about what can anyone say about gender identity ideology
0: Right, so, okay, so the student newspaper contacted you asking you to comment, but I'm assuming they haven't published anything yet?
1: No, you know, I, I know we kind of talked about this last night, and I thought it would be published by today, but it, it still is, it still is not,
0: mm-hmm. so,
1: um,
0: we'll yeah. We'll wait and see. Um, okay, so I wonder, you know, you've been, you've been in academia, have you been teaching in academia for 15 years? I've actually been teaching even longer because I taught in a couple, like I taught a
1: couple of years before that. So maybe altogether 17 years I've been teaching in academia.
0: Okay. So that's good. What, what have you seen change in terms of, um, in terms of how students engage with ideas in general, but also in particular with, uh, controversial ideas over the past 17 years.
1: Well, honestly, I mean, I know there's a lot of rhetoric about kids today and how they're, they're, um, I don't know, like the Red Guards or something. And I, I, I definitely have not found that to be true in my classes. So I've found students to be, you know, I, I don't find students that different now from what they were 17 years ago. I, I think there is a, a population of students. So I think, for example, in my case, I don't think it's students who've taken my classes who are complaining about me. I think it's students who are aware there's a turf on campus and we're going to get her. Mm. So I think, I think there is a population of students that has emerged. But I, I don't think it's the majority of students. Like I, I haven't noticed, I definitely haven't noticed a dramatic difference in my classroom teaching. And as I said, the class in which I actually taught controversial content was kind of fine. So, so the complaints about my controversial views are coming from outside the classroom setting.
0: And have you noticed a change in terms then of the university setting in general and sort of how, how you know, I guess accepting <laughs> and encouraging of free speech and free expression and engaging with controversial ideas, the actual university is, so the institution itself.
1: Yeah, I think there, yes, Um, absolutely. I think there's been a real change in the university in terms of this rhetoric of safe space. So I don't, it's, I mean, I, I don't think it's really principally coming from most students. I, across 17 years, I've found students to be quite similar, Across, So it's not like, oh, my God, 17 years ago, the kids were totally open to ideas, and now they're so close-minded. I, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, but in terms of university policies and university rhetoric, um, which I do think influences some students quite a bit, there has been a real shift, and definitely the emergence of the idea of safe spaces, I has really been very marked across the time that I've been uh, involved in universities as a graduate student, as a as a teacher. and I, you know as as with trans activism, I would say this is something that initially I was sympathetic to. I'll give you an example. I remember reading, I uh, this was years ago, but there was some philosophy blogger and he was talking about how great it was to use abortion as an example of sort of moral dilemmas when he was teaching his philosophy classes. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, in, if you teach large classes, there are going to be some young women who've had abortions, but they're not going to want to expose that. So you're not, you think you're having an honest conversation, but you're not really having an honest conversation. And so Oh, like oh that's so gross and and I think then if somebody had said oh like in order to have safe spaces you shouldn't you shouldn't give abortion as a kind of example of a moral controversy I probably would have agreed, um, but as with other things just seeing the sort of creeping way it it changes the it it changes I don't think I don't know pedagogy exactly but maybe who feels empowered in the university. And although I would have thought that the notion of safe spaces would have made the university kind of a, you know, I really believe the rhetoric that it would make the university kind of a more exciting place to be because it wouldn't be dominated by these bombastic old guys holding forth on abortion. Instead, it's just, it's kind of proliferated a number of many domains of untouchable topics and and so it hasn't it definitely has not had the impact that I would have imagined for it say 15 or 20 years ago
0: yeah i mean it, it, what it does and i mean i i i agree with you cuz i think probably like you know 10 years ago i would have agreed with you and thought oh well you know that makes sense to sort of empower empower women who haven't traditionally been empowered in the academic institution, but that kind of thing does set a precedent. And I guess it's just unfortunate, but I mean, this is how you learn things that I wouldn't have made that connection 10 years ago until I saw (laughs) what, what's happened now, right? Where it's Mm -hmm. like, well, if you position that group as a marginalized group and repressed group, then therefore they get to sort of dictate what kinds of issues and conversations can happen, which is obviously not a good thing.
1: (laughs) Right. And they're kind of constantly multiplying. And the other thing that I have to say, working within a university that I've really noticed is I 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, I would have thought of these things as kind of grassroots initiatives. So it's like, women in the classrooms who are speaking back to the bombastic male philosophy professor who wants to hold forth about abortion. And I would have thought, oh yeah, I'm all for that. But what, I, what you see now is these become kind of fiefdoms of administrative oversight. So it really increases um, and empowers administrative control over the university. So apart, apart from any effect, I mean, it does have an effect on the intellectual life but it's it's kind of the the most powerful people in the university who are wielding these rhetorics most forcefully. So it's not it's it's not like the the kid from a racialized background who who is the first in his family to go to university who's who's operationalizing the safe space rhetoric. It's really administrators who are increasing their control over how the university runs, who's allowed to work there, um, what they're allowed to do. So it's, it's, it's ended up, I mean, as so many things, you know, you, you think it's going to be awesome and it, it ends up in, the way it ends up playing out is in very different hands than maybe the, the hands you imagined it was going to be in. hmm
0: Um, I wonder if anyone particularly students has kind of approached you about you know since you've been putting these kind of these quotes about gender identity ideology on your door and since this has sort of become a controversy around you since you were you know removed from your position as chair um you know have students tried to talk to you about these issues or you know any even anyone in the university other instructors and things like that sort of you know have have people expressed to you that they feel it's difficult to talk about this stuff or anything?
1: Well, that's a good question. I haven't you know i've I've gotten so many emails since this whole thing emerged, and there's none from kind of trans activists who are mad at me. There are a ton from. Ordinary people, students, faculty at other institutions, students at other institutions who say, "Oh, it's so great that you're speaking out because I'm so scared." Like I agree with you, but I'm completely scared to say it. And I've also have had students at the U of A come and tell me that, like, I I've I think that this, you know, I think the gender critical feminist perspective is correct, but I would be slaughtered if I said so out loud. Um, and I think they're I think they're not wrong to be paranoid. I mean, I I think that, and I think. When, Especially when administrations kind of choose sides on we're creating safe spaces, well, a safe space for one student is not a safe space for another. So definitely gender-critical students, the university feels like a very dangerous place for them. So I, I think universities make or prom- making promises about we promise to provide a safe space that they can't – there's no way – There's no way they can and there's no way they should uphold that promise. I also, you might have a follow-up question, but I also have one funny story about the one negative email I've gotten, and literally it was Mm -hmm. the only one. Mm -hmm. Um, So the only negative email was not from, oh, and I also got an email from a gender-critical trans person, so that was interesting as well. But the one negative email was this guy who wrote me this long rant that, um kind of sums up to how delighted he is that a uh, feminist like me is sort of like my middle-aged carcass is being scavenged by the the rising generation of politically correctness. Like I'm, I'm getting what I deserve. So, so that was, yeah, mm-hmm. I thought, I don't know. I found that a bit entertaining, but that's the, that's actually the one, the only, uh, the only e- critical
0: email I've gotten. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it's interesting because I, Most of the feedback that I get privately, so in conversations with people one-on-one or via email, um, is overwhelmingly positive and supportive. Mm
1: -hmm. But of course, Mm -hmm. if you
0: look online, if you look in the sort of public domain, it would appear as though no one agrees with me. I'm the only person in Canada who thinks these horrid thoughts about women being real things and right, right. everybody yeah. hates me i'm a terrible person
1: yeah well i don't know if you've um ever crossed come across the notion of preference falsification it's a uh, i think his name is tim ron cower he's a sociologist he wrote about he wrote about several cases but one of the cases he wrote about was i think it was like the soviet union or someplace where And I'm not sure this is from his book, but I've heard this phrase before, that there's the stage where everyone knows the system is corrupt, but no one is saying it, like everyone privately knows the system is corrupt. And then he's like, the system changes when, and it might not be him, somebody says this, everyone knows that everyone knows. So, and I think what's really, I can see why people are frightened to kind of come out. On the other hand, it really prevents that next stage of, because each person thinks thinks they're more alone than they are. I've definitely experienced this with students because students, because they won't speak up, they think I'm the only gender critical student. And I, I'm in this weird position where I feel like since they've told me this privately, I can't out them to one another. I can't be like, well, that guy over there and that woman over there and that one over there. So I have to keep their secrets about, but, but it's, everyone thinks they're more isolated than they are so you can't get to the, like right now I mean, not everyone knows, but many people know that gender critical feminism is quite sensible but it's we're not yet at the stage where many people know that many people know, or maybe they do I mean, I don't know, maybe they, they must know if they read your, your site, but yeah, but if you say, yeah.
0: I mean, well I always wonder about that too because it's like, I mean while, while I say, you know, like the feedback and the emails that I get and stuff like that, and when you talk to people one-on-one, people get it and it's overwhelmingly positive and supportive, but people are scared to say stuff just like, you know, similar to your experience. Mm
1: -hmm. But then at
0: the same time, of course, like there's people in my circles who have, you know, ostracized me or friends who've kind of forced my friends to choose, like, you know, you have to choose me or her and often they're people that don't know me very well but I have had some like semi-close friends like bail on me and and you know out of pressure from their again from their friends or you know or whatever they just think maybe they don't understand the issue and they genuinely think that what I'm saying is wrong and hateful somehow but I like I tend to think I tend to think on some level most people do get it, but then they sort of will make excuses in their head about why they do have to reject me or ostracize me or vilify me and not speak to me anymore because it's just too hard for them not to because of their friend circles and because they don't want to speak up or they don't want to get criticized for hanging out with me or shunned or whatever. I mean, it just seems impossible to me that the arguments that we're making... I mean, maybe I just have too much faith in people. It seems impossible to me that people could read what we say, or you know, even what what J.K. Rowling published recently, which is just so reasonable, and and still think these are terrible, hateful people who want to harm trans-identified individuals.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you, and it's something I I think about a lot as well. Um, I you know, there's there's that expression that that they said. People in um, feudal Russia would say like, oh, if only the czar knew what was happening, like if he knew how we were being abused, like people had this belief that it's, we're only being oppressed because the czar doesn't know our situation, but he, he would be so enraged if he knew how we were being treated. And I sometimes have this kind of very pessimistic sense that I think as gender critical feminists, we, we so often say this, right, that there's so much for support for our position if you did a referendum across Canada... I think we would win in a landslide, and I think all that's true, but I, th- I think, I don't know, I don't, at this point, I'm not sure how much hope we can attach to it, because I think that's been true for a while, and what we don't control, we might have, we might have a lot of public support, but what we don't control are institutions, so we don't, we don't, we certainly don't control the university, look what's happened to me, we certainly don't control media, you know, I was I was kind of desperately trying to out myself as a gender critical feminist by sending letters to the Edmonton Journal and they would just never get published. Um, <laughs> so we don't we don't control the university. We don't control the media. We don't control politics. You know, you, you can write we write these letters about how we think Bill C-16 is bad or, or, you know, we're opposed to Bill C-8 and it doesn't. It just seems to bounce right off them. And mm-hmm. I think I think people are right to be scared because other people can offer you solidarity but they they can't offer you a job you know they can't and and definitely the institutions all of the important institutions in society are controlled such that it's not a joke you really will suffer if if you step out of line so i i I, that's. I don't have. I. I wish that I, then I would have this nice turnaround where I'd be like, and here's what we should do about it. But I. Mm-hmm. I. I don't know what to do about it. But I. I feel like our sense that most reasonable people, you know, if you look at the articles about me on the national there's like 400 comments that are all like, we can't believe the university is getting somebody in trouble for saying biological sex is real. Um. And I. And I think it remains to be seen in terms of my sort of phase two, once these student journalists turn up whatever they're going to turn up about me, um, and I'm sure going across all of Spencer, there's got to be some horrible stuff there. Well, is, is my being a professor, is that going to save me? And so um, on the one hand, I guess I, I feel like, well, it's bringing attention to this issue, but will I end up being kind of a uh, an example of like, look how we string up gender critical feminists when we get the opportunity. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I used to when I maybe two years ago, I constantly had this sense of like, oh, this whole thing is about to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. It's got to, you know, it's another six months at the most, and now two years long. Um, I'm, I'm less optimistic. I don't know. Is that valid? Are you you less optimistic, more optimistic, the same?
0: Uh, I mean, I I sort of feel like in 10 years, we're all going to look back on this and feel embarrassed and that no one who supported it and threw us all under the bus is going to admit that they were wrong and that they participated because it will be so obvious that this had such horrible repercussions, probably related to a bunch of trans-identified people suing surgeons and doctors who pushed them down this path towards destroying their lives and bodies and promised them things that they cannot have. Um, But I also, I mean, I think you make a really good point around the fact that, you know, the majority of the population does agree with us and, and thinks this is all crazy or would think this was all crazy if they knew. I'm sure there's plenty of people who don't realize what's going on. Um, but that the institutions are completely controlled by people who support trans activism and gender identity ideology. Obviously, the left and liberal, um, politicians and parties, um, you know, every, you know, all, all government institutions, every single one of them, any city institution, any like federal province run institution, um, academia, and the media is totally controlled by, you know, these activists and this activist-driven narrative. So it it is, it right. is hard to figure out wh- way to what to do. I mean, I always just say like the more of us who speak out, because I want to sort of normalize this, and I want people to realize, you know, we're not the mi- we're not the minority. We're not some like fringe group. We're just saying basic things that the majority of the population throughout the world knows and agrees with.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I I just the the what you're saying about institutions and I think the seductions of being on the side of of this kind of politics are so powerful, though, because I I know i have sat in at this point, many, many university sessions where somebody who makes I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Between two hundred thousand and six hundred thousand dollars a year, like somebody who's in central administration, really is is banging on about um, their support for marginalized people, and they're you know, you think it's 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 such a source of power, um, and so we shouldn't be surprised that it's been seized upon by people who are justifying their powers. So I, I think that's a large part of its appeal to politics. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's true that there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of money behind it and all of that, but I also think it has some inherent qualities that make it really attractive to um, managerial elites within institutional settings because mm-hmm. you have to justify, like, why do you have that power and are you serving the public? And then you can sort of say, oh... I, you know, do you not see that I'm speaking on behalf of the most marginalized in our population? And I, this, I, this is um, to go back to, to the part two of what's happening to me and trolling through Spencer to find whatever there is. You know, I, I um, we talked about this a little bit uh, last night when we briefly spoke, but I, one of the things that I think is is one of the most powerful but also most dangerous kinds of civil disobedience is mockery and laughter. So one of the things that I'm sure they've found on Spencer is one of the things that that people do on that relentlessly is they mock gender identity claims, right? And they and they mock the rhetoric of gender identity. And on the one hand, this is in for you know, for me this is kind of dangerous because people are going to be like, "Oh my god, look at how mean they are." On the other hand, I I think there's this maybe I'm wrong, like I'm not a political strategist, but I feel like this is one of the only possibilities for kind of puncturing the incredible self-righteous hubris Mm -hmm. that one sees again and again and again and again. And, and there's, I, you know, if we, if, if we can't if we can't make fun of it, we're, we're, we're sort of disarming ourselves in a way, because if you, if you're reverential in the way you, they demand you be reverential, the conversation is over because there, there are all these sort of, I mean, it's, it's like a religious orthodoxy. There's all these, these, um, sort of creeds and mantras. And if you, if you try to engage those creeds and mantras, politely you've already ceded a tremendous amount of the territory um so and but it's it's tricky because on the other hand for for people who maybe haven't been following it if you're if it's the first time they've heard it i mean i know this was me 10 years ago um it sounds persuasive so if somebody if a gender critical feminist is like (laughs) In response, I, I don't know. I, I think about this, I don't I don't know what the right answer is. I almost wish that I could read empirical case studies of past political struggles. What did they use? Did they use humor? Did they use but I, I'm not sure we've ever faced um a time when power has cloaked itself in in this discourse of marginality. Like I'm making $400,000 a year, but I'm acting on behalf of these very vulnerable people. And so I'm just going to steamroll you with my virtue. Um, Yeah.
0: I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I obviously use humor and satire in my work a lot and sometimes I mean and partly just because like it's exhausting to be very serious and dour all the time and it's not really my personality like I in my I I make jokes a lot and I laugh a lot I'm just not a very serious (laughs) person but knock it off (laughs) (laughs) stop enjoying life um but I do you know satire and humor I think are very important tools in terms of, you know, I, I you know getting people on side and engaged and communicating ideas like and challenging ideas. I guess I just I don't know I don't know if it helps for everyone just to be so serious and dour all the time, especially when like the reality is that the w- what's happening right now in terms of gender identity and all these, you know, n- non-binary identities and all these kind of teenagers and young people changing their pronouns to all these ridiculous things that make no sense Um, right right. I mean it is silly like a lot of it is funny and I I mean that it's sort of been used against me I think probably from people who don't really read my work so they're they're missing tone but who people who already hate me will say like Or actually, and you know, even my friends sometimes will be like, Well, can't you just be nicer? Like, can't you be mean? Like, don't make fun of them. And I'm like, Well, I'm not, it's not really, it's not mean spirited. It's just that some of this is silly. Like, these like 21 year old guys parading around in these like, you know, royal outfits and announcing that they're different and special from everyone else because they have a bunch of piercing and they've dyed their hair and they're wearing a skirt and you know I like I I just right. it's hard it's it's hard to take those kinds of people seriously especially when the whole world watches and thinks you know this person is is being ridiculous and taking themselves too seriously. Like everyone should have humor about it. You shouldn't take yourself so seriously. No one should take themselves so seriously right. in my opinion. And actually, no,
1: I mean you're so because that is one of the key features of this discourse is it is incredibly self-serious. So it's it's this reverence about I mean, you know, the gender critical part of gender critical feminism is we're critical of gender. We we think it should be um, sort of it's the problem you need to abolish it you need to not you need to not have this sort of reverent attitude towards it and so it's the encounter of this incredibly po-faced serious and I I think you know I think some people are in Tania McGrath is great at it I don't I don't know if that appeals to everyone or if or if everyone gets it but it's it is, hard to know how else to combat it because if you try to be if you try to match it serious
0: for serious
1: I don't you know I don't know but maybe maybe there is a way to match it kind of serious for serious
0: I just don't want to be so serious all the time and I think you know like I think you know I don't know for some people probably like really serious debates and really serious issues like they don't want anything to do with because they're like oh this is no fun this is tiring just like leave me out of this like you know this debate is so toxic already that I think Mm -hmm. people are kind of like I just don't want anything to do with any of these people (laughs) you know or whatever they see online I did want to talk to you about um, before we end, we've been on the phone for a little while here, so I do want to let you go. But um, at some point, um, the, the equity, diversity, inclusion policy at the University of Alberta passed in May. Um, I wonder if right. you can tell me a bit about that.
1: Well, it's funny. I was actually just thinking about that, so that's a great question to end on. I, you know, I this is one of the, I was the only faculty member on the general faculties member general faculty's council to vote against it. A couple of students voted against it, but I was the only only faculty member. Um, And I I was concerned at the time about just the way that inclusion, although it sounds amazing, is used in really disciplinary ways towards um, gender-critical feminists. But I also think there's some other kind of absurd... uh, Consequences of this policy. So the policy, one of the things the policy says that in in hiring everywhere in the university going forward, if you have two equivalent candidates for any position, it could be a professor position, it could be a staff position. Um, if they're equivalently qualified, you should find, you should hire the one who's um, more historically underrepresented. So they're trying to promote. Um, and they're trying to diversify the university and promote historically underrepresented populations. Now, I, you know, I, I am supportive of that, but I think because gender identity is included on the list, on an equal standing, actually sex doesn't appear anyway, but on an equal standing with things like um, indigenous people, disability, I, I'm just envisioning a scenario where if you had two equivalent qualified candidates and one was an indigenous woman and one was a person who identified as non-binary and used they them pronouns just in terms of historical underrepresentation well since that identity didn't even exist five years ago it's much more historically underrepresented but in terms of any kind of sense of historical justice or where the left once upon a time was headed that's you know that's that's kind of ludicrous that those two things would be considered on the same basis. So I, as much as this kind of, again, clothes itself in the history of social justice, and the language of social justice, I mean, this is not original insight, but it's, it's so regressive, and its consequences are so regressive. And, and I don't know, how to make people see that? I th- I think you're right that in ten years everyone will agree with that. That, but of course we have to live through the in between, right? So so many terrible regimes fall, but but a lot of people get shot along the way. So you just don't want to be one of the ones who who doesn't get to make it to the to the happy resolution ten years later.
0: Yeah, and I guess I mean in ten years I don't think that the problem will be resolved in academia. It might even be worse because all this stuff will have been institutionalized and i don't know how you kind of backtrack backtrack and i mean and also so much is changing right now in terms of how universities function and how classes are taught and you know they're treating students as customers essentially you know neoliberalism Mm -hmm. has has fully taken over and so students have a lot of power in sort of an odd way I mean I don't know what it's if it's like this so much in Canada but my mother works at a university in the U.S. and uh you know instructors and profs are sort of beholden to students because the evaluations determine whether or not they're rehired um this probably wouldn't apply to people who are are tenured but of course tenured positions are few and far between nowadays so it you know and that impacts grades because of course if you give a student a bad grade they're going right, to be unhappy right. and give you a bad evaluation.
1: <laughs> yeah, so. and even tenured professors are evaluated. So of course you're always aware aware of student evaluations. And and yeah, you definitely you know, you don't want people to be abusive, so you want students to have a way to say this professor is terrible or unfair or but but yeah, I mean, it it does introduce things into the the classroom that are probably not not ultimately helpful to learning at all. Yeah,
0: I guess I mean so finally, and and I mean, <clears throat> what I mean, what, I guess I should clarify because I you know it's like I'm contradicting myself. Like in in ten years, I think the the population is going to see that this was ridiculous and there were lots of problems. But I'm not sure that the institutions will be able to backtrack in ten years because you know we've changed the law and we've changed all these policies and like Oof. you know it's it's sort of baked into how these institutions function and how workplaces function. Um, but you know, how what do you, where do you see academia heading um, in terms of? This issue, but also in terms of free speech, free expression, um, the the ability of instructors and students to explore controversial topics and ideas.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I I feel like there's there's definitely a space for something because I I think many people are sort of frustrated by what they see. Happening, But the universities are nevertheless entirely captured by this safe space. Um, we have to balance what they said in my case. We have to balance academic freedom with with uh, the feeling of safety of students. So I don't know. I mean, are we going to see the founding of new private universities that are run on a more old fashioned Basis, I don't, I don't know. I do I do think it has at public universities, I think ultimately it has a really negative effect just because, you know, a couple of people have said, oh, one of the bad things about your case is it just it just makes people feel disgusted with the university generally, and they're like, well, let's just defund it. And I I think I think that's obviously not great, but I, you know, the the administration seems to really have its foot on that pedal pretty hard. I, I don't quite know why, because I think it is ultimately self-destructive. Um, But nobody seems to be thinking, hey, you know, maybe if the public that pays for the university becomes completely disgusted with our conduct, they're going to be delighted the next time the provincial government slashes us again. So, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, that, I mean, it's not.
0: It's a tough position to be in like as a leftist because I've always, you know, opposed privatization and supported um public funding in terms of all sorts of things healthcare academia mm-hmm. etc um, but you know, I'm at the point where, for example, I I feel like I do support the defunding of the CBC because they're just so awful and so biased and so unwilling to oh, do their yeah. jobs in an ethical way. So you know, I've, the same.
1: I've had the exact same feeling that, and I I'm well, many of us feel this way, right? That positions that we or feelings that we're starting to have now. If you told me that I was going to feel this way ten years ago, I would have thought I had a catastrophic head injury in between or something. But yeah, exactly that. I've thought. You know, there's times where I just flip off the CBC because I think I don't know who wants to be propagandized by that, but Mm -hmm. not me. Um, Yeah, I can't really
0: listen anymore. So and I guess so this uh, is the similar that similar feeling I could apply towards universities. Also, it's like, well, what is the point of this? Like, maybe it would be better to have private universities and private media that and that they were able to escape the, the clutches of this you know overwhelming ideological you know i don't know uh like right that really, drowning in ideology <laughs> like,
1: yeah that really comes from that really comes from on high and i i know we've talked for a long time i this is something that i'm always looking for great analyses of this i do think it has something to do with you know what people have called neo feudalism and the increased uh, economic inequality in our society, so I, I you may have seen, but the other day I saw there was a picture of Jamie Dimon, who's um, just like a Wall Street monster, and he was taking a knee for Black Lives Matter, and I I feel like it's just so easy. I mean, it's just so terrible that mm-hmm. he's able that he's allowed to participate in that. And as much as on the one hand I support Black Lives Matter, I think it's interesting that. Jamie Black Lives Matter kind of has room for Jamie Dimon whereas if it was a Marxist revolution like he'd just be shot and and so I and that's something like the kind of grumpy old Marxists who were mad about identity politics back in the 90s I always felt like well you know they're not, never going to need an abortion or a gay marriage so who cares what they think but some of their some of their direst predictions now feel
0: kind of true so yeah yeah, it's a really awkward place to land. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> so
1: that, that'll like really send your listening audience totally out, like, revved up and Sneak. ready to take on huh. the <laughs>
0: um thank you so Um, much I mean this is a really interesting conversation in any case thanks so much for talking to me and then sorry about what's happening to you right now I know it's incredibly stressful you know we laugh about it but I think uh it's really it's really hard it's a really hard place to be
1: yeah no I have to say I you know I've always admired you but I having been at the receiving end of the fire hose just for a few days I admire you all the more so just thank you thank you for all that you
0: do well, yeah. Thank you for uh, standing up in a place that is—it's—you uh, probably feel pretty alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <that's> luckily, <laughs> one, one thing
1: that's nice about being older is most of my friends don't follow this at all. So, I mean, my friends love me as much as they ever did, but it's—it's it's mostly because it's not even a, a source of controversy in my social circles. So, yeah
0: all right well good luck with everything okay. and thanks, keep me Shannon. in the loop i'll be following online obviously but um yeah thanks for chatting and have a great day okay you too bye take bye. care bye you just heard an interview with kathleen lowry find her on spinster at kathleen b e e at spinster.xyz that is all the time we have for today i'm megan murphy thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at FeministCurrent.com, tweet at us at FeministCurrent, or send us an email at info at We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, B.C., If you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit FeministCurrent.com and click the donate button.